We are uh, continuing this morning in a summer series of sermons that we've called Shadows of the Cross in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll wrap up this, this series next week, and in a couple of weeks, get back to the Gospel of Mark. We'll pick up where we left off in chapter 14, which begins the section of Mark that is specifically tightly focused on uh, the suffering and death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so, uh, I think and hope, uh, believe that this summer series is a good run-up to that. Uh, But it's also, of course, in its own right, a a wonderful focus on the cross of Christ. Uh, There's no way we could do a series like this, Shadows of the Cross in the Old Testament, and not look at this passage that's in front of us today, Isaiah 53, which gives us, I think, without any argument, uh, well, I'll say this way, I'll say it this way, there's no other Old Testament text that more clearly gives us a picture of the cross. In fact, uh, it's almost a misnomer to include this passage in a series of sermons that are talking about shadows of the cross in the Old Testament. Uh, One of the old commentators on this passage says, it so vividly portrays the cross of Christ, it's as if it was written at the very foot of Golgotha. And so, uh, we're giving our attention this morning uh, to this passage. The cross of Christ, His death and resurrection for sinners, Jew, Gentile, men and women and children all over the world, is not a merely New Testament theme. This is not something that that arose in the age of the New Testament, which we then read back into the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament, inherently, organically, part of God's revealed plan from the very beginning. And so, though Isaiah, and it's interesting to try to imagine what it was like for him, though surely Isaiah did not fully comprehend everything he was saying, nevertheless, from his own vantage point, from his own place in history, he was seeing Christ and speaking of Christ. Now, Isaiah uh, can be divided into two sections, uh, and in the second section there are four songs, four poems that are really focused on this individual who's known as the servant of the Lord. And the the passage that we'll read together in a few moments is the fourth of those songs. Uh, You can't tell if you're you're looking at uh, the text as it's printed in the bulletin, but if if you're looking in your own Bible, you can see that it's, it's it's a poem that has five stanzas. And the first stanza is an introduction to the whole, And then the remaining four stanzas are really, uh, just bear with me, I'm an English major. Uh, The remaining four stanzas are really two pairs of of two stanzas. And in stanza two and four, we're told the facts about the servant of the Lord. And in stanzas three and five, we're given the interpretation of those facts. But in all of this song, all of this poem, what we're being pointed to is the realities of the experience of the suffering of the Lord, the Lord's servant who is the Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord, the suffering servant. Uh, The message of the song, as you'll see, is twofold. He's victorious is the first theme. We're told in the opening stanza, my servant will act wisely. He'll be highly exalted and lifted up. This is language in Isaiah that's only used of God. My servant will be God himself. His triumph, his victory will be total. It'll be, in fact, worldwide. And yet, the song will also show us that his path to victory, 
leads through His own suffering and death. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and His form beyond that of the children of mankind. And that's why many are blind to His work. So on the one hand, His victory will be total. But on the other hand, many people look at Him and His suffering is so horrible, they're not even asking, is this the Lord's servant? They're asking, is this even human? And yet, to those who have eyes to see it, Jesus, God's servant, is the power and wisdom of God. So let's give our attention to God's Word. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, 
and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, or probably better, the numerous, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. God, every, every word that you have spoken, every letter, every syllable, every word of the Scriptures is true because it is from your mouth. It's given to us, and that means it truly is holy. It's reliable. It's good. But there are certain, there are certain places that we come to in your word that are so striking, so important, so profound that we, we really really need to hear you. Lord, please uh, open our ears and our hearts and our minds that we would not be hard, that we would not be cold, that we would not be stupid, that we would hear you. God, by your Spirit, please break through that we would see Jesus and that we would respond to him in all of the appropriate ways as we should but as we cannot do apart from your help. Lord, draw near and help, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. I want to start with a question. I'm going to ask you several questions today, in fact, but I want to start with the question, when you look at Jesus, what do you see? Isaiah opens with uh, his version of that question, God's version of that question, rather, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You understand why Isaiah asked that question. He, he asked that question because it's his experience that many people, while they know of the Lord, do not see him. While they look at Jesus, do not grasp who he is. So let me ask you, when you look at Jesus and you hear about him, when you consider him, who do you see? Do, do your thoughts about who Jesus is line up with what God says? Do your affections, your feelings about him flow out of the truth of who he is and what he's done? Or to put it this way most simply, when you look at Jesus, do you see what God sees? I'd like to ask you, two questions in the next few minutes that we've got together uh, that I hope will help you to see what God says about His Son in this chapter. Here's the first question. Do you see, as you look at Jesus, do you see the Lamb of God? Now, this idea of the Lamb of God has uh, a huge context in the Bible. If you remember several weeks ago, Hal preached from Genesis 22, the account of Abraham uh, and Isaac, where Abraham is commanded to go and take his, his son Isaac, whom he loves, and offer him on the mountain of Moriah as a sacrifice to the Lord. And you remember the question Isaac asks his father as they set out. Very perceptive boy. Father, behold, the fire and the wood, but there's something missing. If we're to go offer a sacrifice together, where is the lamb, Father? The question that Abraham must have dreaded hearing from his son whom he loved. 
And yet Abraham so wisely answers, the Lord himself will provide a lamb for the offering, my son. And the Lord did provide. The Lord did provide a lamb for the offering. God will see to it, Isaac, Abraham says, and God provides a ram in place of the boy. Provides a lamb who dies in the place of Isaac on the altar. Or skip ahead to Exodus chapter 12, the Passover, which God commands the people to, uh, of Israel there in Egypt on the eve of their exodus to take a lamb and to slaughter it and to spread its blood on the doorpost and the lintel over the door and that wherever the door is covered with the blood of the Passover lamb, the angel of the Lord who's come in wrath and in judgment on the firstborn of all the houses in Egypt will pass over where he sees the blood, the lamb again in the place of the guilty sinner. Or for one more example, Leviticus 16, the day of atonement which in, on which annually first a lamb is sacrificed for the sins of the people and then, and then one is brought and the priest and the company of all the people of Israel lays his hands, you remember, on the head of the goat, the scapegoat. And he confesses the sins of the people while laying his hands on the scapegoat. You understand the symbolism there. He's transferring symbolically the sins of Israel to the head of this goat. And then you remember at the hands of a man who's been appointed, that scapegoat is led out into the wilderness never to return. The sins of God's people placed upon the substitute, upon the ram, and cast away. He bears their sins away. Well, we could go on. This is throughout the Old Testament. We're only in Leviticus. The Lamb of God. When you look at Jesus, do you see the Lamb of God? But you see, if this is going to work, if there's going to be a substitute, it has to be a person. An animal won't do. Adam, our first father, the first man, sinned against God. Real men and real women and real boys and real girls, you and I have sinned. Man has sinned. Man must pay. The lamb will have to be a man, but it can't just be any man. And the servant of the Lord who we see here in Isaiah 53 is no mere man, is he? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When you look at Jesus, do you see the Lamb of God? God has provided. God has provided. Jesus is the ram. He's the Passover lamb, the scapegoat, the perfect sacrifice who has died in the place of sinners like you and me. And so the question is, do you see him? Do you see that he is the Lamb of God? You see, the text of Isaiah tells us that most people have hidden their faces, that they've turned away, repelled, appalled, disinterested, unimpressed. Why? Because he's not what they're looking for. He's not the sort of leader they're seeking. He's despised. He's rejected. He's a man of sorrows. He's a man who's acquainted with grief He's a man whose life is characterized by affliction and by hardship. But the question behind that is why? You see, how you 
what you assume about Jesus and how you see him is driven by how you interpret his life and his death, how you interpret what he endured. So the question is why? Why was he despised and rejected? Why was he a man of sorrows? Was it because of something he had done? No. Was it merely to show an example of what faithful zeal towards God looks like? No. It's because he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet, apart from a supernatural work of God, you could look at Jesus endlessly forever and not see him. We want to think, well, if, surely if God has done something so remarkable, I would see it. I would notice it. Uh, if something so astounding had been done, I would be one of the first people to recognize it. I, I know an amazing thing when I see it. Absolutely not. Apart from a supernatural work of God, you and I wouldn't know the truth if He took on flesh and lived and died and was raised right in front of our eyes. And that's because our minds and our bodies and our emotions are corrupted by sin. No one gets it right on their own, and that's why I have to ask you again this morning from this text, have you seen Jesus as the Lamb of God and believed the good news about Him? Do you see the Lamb? Well, the second question, if that's the first, do you see the Lamb of God as you look at Jesus? The second is, do you see your need for the Lamb of God? You see, it's not enough to simply say, yeah, I, I believe that Jesus is the Lamb of God. You must see that you personally need His sacrifice. You need Him to die in your place. If you're here this morning and you're wondering, you've ever asked, what's the essence of Christianity? What's the heart? What's the center of the Christian faith? You could use the words of Isaiah 53, 6 as the answer. We've all gone astray. We're like sheep who've wandered each to our own way. There's not one of us exempt from that statement in this room. And surely if you would consider that and hear each of us has gone astray, you could not file a protest against that charge. No, I've not gone astray. I've not sought my own way. Everyone knows that they have sought their own way they've sought to disregard God, to displace Him, to pursue their own ideas, their own agendas. We're sinners. We're sheep who've gone astray. We turn from God. We make ourselves our own master. But God was not willing to leave us in this guilty and condemned condition. He planned from eternity past to send a suffering servant one who would bear our sins as a substitute for us. The Lord, we read in Isaiah, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the heart of Christianity. Jesus came to die, not just to die, to die in our place, to die for our sins, to bear our sins. That's our only hope. It's the only hope that you have in this life is that God sent Jesus into this world, the perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God, to die in the place of sinners. And you have got to get to a point and remain at a point where you see that Jesus is not the Lamb of God in some sterile, out-there way, but He is the sacrifice provided by God because I deserve the wrath of God. I deserve to bear His judgment. 
There's nothing in me that could commend me to God. There is so much in me that actually provokes the holy wrath of God that it requires the substitutionary death of the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, must die and shed His blood, the blood that comes from the body that He assumed freely and graciously. That blood must be shed for me. There is no sacrifice that will do but that sacrifice. No animal, no effort, no work, no resolve. Only Jesus can redeem you. And if you haven't ever really thought about this, then let me urge you to think about it with all of your mind, with all of your heart. Because this is the good news. The Lamb of God, the servant of the Lord, was, Isaiah says, pierced through and crushed at least one of the commentaries I read this week said, these are perhaps the most violent words available at the time in the Hebrew language to describe his death. He was crushed. It pleased the Lord, verse 10, to crush him, to pierce him through. By his death, the servant bears our punishment, the punishment that brings us into peace with God. His life was characterized by grief and sorrow, but they weren't his own. He bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He was punished to bring us peace. And he did all of this, we're told, silently, without protest, charged with blasphemy, pleading guilty, though he was without any sin of his own. He silently, willingly, lovingly stands in our place. We sang it earlier, bearing shame and scoffing, rude. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Can you say that this morning? Is that your confession of faith this morning? Can you make it personal? Can you make the work of Christ personal like that? In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Because if you can say that about yourself, if you know that to be true by God's grace, then the next line of the hymn just explodes out of your heart, doesn't it? Hallelujah. What a Savior. This is the arm of the Lord. This is the power of God at work for salvation. Do you see the Lamb? Do you see your need for the Lamb? You know that you're not just flawed. We don't just make mistakes. We are, as God says at the very beginning of Isaiah, from the top of the head to the sole of the foot, covered with wounds, no health. So what are we to do? What are you to do? There's nothing you can do. But the good news of the gospel, the announcement here in Isaiah, is that God has chosen to do something for us, in fact, everything for us, to send His Son to bear the sin of many make intercession for the transgressors. So, again, in all of this, where are you? When you look at Jesus, when you think about Him, do you just think your own thoughts about Him? Do you see what God sees? Do you see the Lamb of God? Do you see the implications that has for you personally? Do you see how that uncovers your need? Do you see how that also exposes, again, the depth of God's grace, His love, His kindness? So then, 
after all of that, the question is, how, how, are, how are you going to respond? How, how will you respond if, if this is who Jesus is, if you're seeing him this way, how will you respond? And in order to wrap this up by way of conclusion, some application, I want to offer four points here. And they all start with an S, so hopefully you can remember them. Sin, the Savior, suffering, and singing. So first of all, in light of all this, the Lamb of God, your need for the Lamb, His bearing of sin, His being the suffering servant of the Lord, is it possible that some of you are not taking sin as seriously as you should? And I mean, maybe it's your own. Maybe it's sin of others, more likely both. Is it possible that some of you have too light a view of sin? I think it's possible. I think it should be considered. But you've heard again this morning about the depth of the suffering of the servant of the Lord Jesus who endured God's wrath against sin. And so I think one question, one important question that comes from this text is if it's true of us, and I would say that it's true of all of us at some point, at various points, but if it's true of you now at this point, can you look at the cross of Christ as you see here in Isaiah 53 and have a casual, tolerant, soft attitude towards your own sin? It doesn't fit, does it? Second, sin, the Savior. Some of you have a very different problem. Some of you don't tend to fall into the problem of minimizing sin. Some of you fall into the problem of looking at your sin more than you contemplate the Lord Jesus. And so, whereas the one person can fall into presumption, you can fall into despair and hopelessness and a sense of weakness and powerlessness in your struggle against sin. But see, this passage has good news. It speaks to you as well. Because the one who bore your sin, the one who was carrying your transgressions and was pierced for your iniquities, is the same one who, in the Gospels, says, come to me and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You'll find rest for your soul. And so for you, I, I would ask, what reason do you have for despairing? What has Jesus not done to set you free from the power and the curse of sin? Yes, you struggle with it. What has He not done to set you free from it? How could you doubt Him? You have no reason to doubt Him. The Lord's grace and mercy are so much stronger than you realize. The work is finished. Jesus has paid the cost. Your sins have been atoned for. That's good news. Sin, the Savior. Third, suffering. In 1 Peter 2, which we saw earlier, Peter is reflecting on this very passage from Isaiah, and he speaks about suffering. He speaks about Christians who suffer. Many of you right now are suffering very hard things. You're dealing with unjust suffering of various kinds, and you're trying to 
to sort it out, to make sense of it. Well, Peter says that when you endure unjust suffering of various kinds, you're actually following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus. He, he gives that as a word of comfort, a word of encouragement. And what he says is that Jesus suffered patiently, quietly, entrusting himself to him who judges justly, entrusting himself, his cause, his life, his outcome to the Father, knowing that his Father would be faithful. And in suffering that way, Jesus secured your salvation. And so Peter says then, you too, as you suffer, as you're afflicted, as you encounter various trials, you can do so patiently. You can learn to do so humbly and quietly because you know that the Father who did not abandon His Son to the grave but raised Him up from the dead on the third day will not abandon you but will draw near to you in your suffering. He'll raise you up and that what you're experiencing is actually walking after Jesus in this life. That's an important word of encouragement for you from the cross into your suffering. Well, then fourthly, what's the fourth S? Sin, the Savior, suffering. What's the fourth S? Well, it's singing. Now, why do I say singing? If you go all the way to the end of the Bible, we're talking about Jesus, the Lamb of God. You go to Revelation chapter 5, where, which we saw in our call to worship this morning. And there at the very climax of all of history, who do you see? The Lamb. The Lamb on His throne. And who do you see around the Lamb? You see this massive multitude of people. People like you and me who had no right to be there, but have been brought in by the grace of God around the throne of the Lamb. And what do they do? They, they sing to Him. They praise Him. They can't stop. They can't but do that. And they never stop doing that, and not just the people, but the angels and all these perfect beings who've never even known a sinful thought in their whole existence. All they can do is praise the Lamb. Why is the praise so great? The praise is so great because the Lamb is so great. And Jesus actually anticipates all of this in Isaiah 53 in some way that I... I just would encourage you to think about this. As he's suffering, as he's dying, he is also considering you. He, he's thinking about his offspring. That's you. That's the church. And he's seeing the light. He's seeing that his suffering is going to mean that the many are accounted righteous. He's seeing that through his suffering, he will have an offspring, that he will sprinkle many nations, that he will cleanse them with his blood, and that they will be surrounding him a host of praising people, praising God, singing his praise because of what he's done. That's why he's done what he's done, not simply to save us, but to make us, as we saw last week, worshipers of his Father. Can you imagine what that will be like? But you see, that praise that, that we just can lean toward now actually is already breaking back into this life right now. That's part of what's happening this morning. It's the praise of heaven. It's just breaking back into this age a little bit. It's giving you an anticipation of what's to come. So, 
Let me ask you this. Do you see the Lamb of God? Do you, do you see your need of Him? Are you His? Are you His? Because you can be. You can belong to that great, that great worshiping people around the throne of the Lamb, even though you feel completely unworthy. Because that's the whole point of the death of Christ. The worthy in the place of the unworthy the clean in the place of the defiled, the servant of the Lord in the place of His people. The last verse of the the song that the musician sang for us a few minutes ago says, Here we have a firm foundation. Here the refuge of the lost. Christ's the rock of our salvation. His the name of which we boast. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. You will never, 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 never be disappointed, be put to shame, be confounded if your hope is in this servant. Never. Do that. Do that today. Do that every day. Do that again. Look to Him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away the sins, your sins, as you look to Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You have called us to behold Your servant, to look at Him, the Lord Jesus. And I pray that all of us has seen Him this morning. Once he was humiliated for us in his conception, his birth, his life, his suffering, his shameful, awful death, his burial, but now he has been exalted for us. Once he bore the sin of many, but now he lives forever to make intercession for transgressions and transgressors. He has acted wisely, just as you said. 700 plus years beforehand. The will of the Lord has prospered in His hand. He has sprinkled many nations with His cleansing, life-giving blood. He has accounted many to be righteous. Many of us here today have been accounted righteous in your sight because of what He has done. He has succeeded. He has received the whole world as His kingdom. Now he's sharing with us the spoils of his victory. Father, forgive us for our trivializing of the sins which nailed him to the tree. Forgive us for our despairing in which we have minimized his triumph over sin, our sin. Sustain us in our own trials as we fix our eyes on the shepherd and overseer of our souls and fill our minds and hearts and lives with praise as we see the greatness and worthiness of the Lamb who was slain and now who rules. And we ask it in His name. Amen. I have to ask uh, the elders who were helping, are helping with communion to come forward.